Welcome to the Eucatastrophe, where we meander through politics, pop culture, church and society to consider true human ends and how life may be enchanted. I'm Joel, he's Dave, I'm glad you could join us for what is episode 10. Wow, we did it. (laughs) We've made it. If you've continued with us over these 10 episodes, thank you. We hope to have many, many more to come. We're going to be talking about something interesting today, and to give us a bit of a segue into that, I just wanted to ask Dave, Dave, if you were establishing your own monastic order, Hmm. what would be your rules? Um, Naked Tuesday. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) um, I don't know. I think we'd have to um, probably cycle through different Star Wars films every day of the week. Mm. Um, but Empire Strikes Back only for holidays. Yeah, yeah. And like, what well, episode would would, um, would the Phantom Menace be like the penance day? Yeah. yeah. So Lent, Lent, you're only watching um, the Ewoks movies. What? <laughs> Have you seen the Ewoks? No, is that the Christmas special? No, no. That you'd be watching the Christmas special as well. But there's two Ewoks movies, like straight to they were made for TV movies. Right. You haven't seen these? No. Cut the Caravan of Darkness or something like that. Oh. We'll have to have a special okay, time. Okay, yeah. Next Lent. Yeah. What are we doing, Dave? So, um, we've been talking since we started this podcast um, that about the fact that one of the main things that we're interested in doing is thinking about how theological imagination can be kind of baked into a, a vision of the common good, our understanding of what it is that a good and just society should be orientated towards. Um and we've discussed kind of a few different op- options, particularly in that in that first episode, um, different options in as far as how um, theological imagination kind of might manifest itself. One of the more prevalent versions of this that's present in popular discourse today is what we might call an exilic narrative, a narrative of exile. That is that we are somehow a chosen minority or few um, that is somehow not where we ought to be. We're not in the land of promise. Um, uh, And in fact, we're in kind of hostile territory, um, pushed out of where we ought to be. And there's lots of different versions of this narrative. Um, Some of them are very compelling, some of them kind of um, not so much. But one of the uh, versions of this that we're going to look at today is what's called the Benedict Option, which is the title of a book by uh, conservative commentator Rob Dreyer. Uh, now, Joel, before we talk about this, there's one thing I need to talk about is uh, you lent me your copy of this book mm. and it is mainly post-it notes. <laughs> I, I just want to talk about what you're hoping to achieve. <laughs> we'll put, but, it, so we'll put, it, we'll put, put a photo it, up. I'll put a photo up, but literally every single page of this book yeah. has a post-it this note. This is how I read books. I once had a librarian tell me that um, the glue, she was horrified because the glue in post-it notes degrades the book. Oh. But, you know, as we say in this choose your own adventure style of learning. Some, some children are visual learners and some children are, uh, are verbal learners. Mm. I don't know. Anyway, it's all nonsense. I'm obviously a post-it learner. <laughs> that's how I do things. I don't think there's any learning here. No. This is obsession. No. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> They're angry post-it notes. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> They're put down and... But tell us about the Benedict Okay, uh, Joel. Um, so 
Dreyer's central argument, I think, comes out in a few passages. He says, our scientists, our judges, our princes, our scholars, and our scribes, they are at work demolishing the faith, the family, gender, even what it means to be human. Now, even that just gives you a sense of the tone of this book. Mm. Um, It is a tone that is, you may say, is predicated on fear. Um, Could it be that the best way, he continues, could it be that the best way to fight the flood is to stop fighting the flood? That is, to quit piling up sandbags and to build an ark in which to shelter until the water recedes and we can put our feet on dry land again. Rather than wasting energy and resources fighting unwinnable political battles, we should instead work on building communities, institutions, and networks of resistance that outwit, outlast, and eventually overcome the occupation. Mm. So this book presents a narrative both of fall and decline, but then also potentially a response to this. It's not simply a refusal of the world, Drew tries to emphasize at various points, although it is very easy to take away mm. that as the underlying message that we, there is a refusal and an exile that must take place. Um, he's trying, in a sense, to point to parallel communities. Now, much of the book then becomes something of a practical handbook. Um, Dreyer's background is as a journalist, and he presents a series of stories that point to Christians forming thick community of practice, liturgy, discipline, and education. And these examples in themselves are typically, you know, good. They have some value, real value to them. Um, he talks about education in a way that I think I find I'm relatively sympathetic to, uh, that we have this, and especially writing in the American context, this idea that we must send our children uh, down the right path of education towards an Ivy League future. Mm. Um, uh, whereas he says Christian education may look quite different. Um, you know, he says what we do for Christian education at the moment m- looks more like the same thing in which we have elite forms of education that are for a certain upper crust of people mm. with a little seasoning of Christianity on the top. And I think that is probably a pretty good characterization of Christian schools in Australia, for mm. example, often is the case. So there's this emphasis in his um, idea of parallel communities that are surrounded, uh, centered on liturgical worship and sacramentality. Um, now, there, that's interesting because he does have a sort of sacramental sense, but at the same time, he downplays this because he's trying to capture everyone, including, I think, a um, often an evangelical audience. Um, now, I think if you'd just written that as the book and mm. you call it something like stories of renewal, hope, joy, mm. right? And it was just vignettes yep. of these different communities. That would be a better book. Yeah, It would be a better book because it's a more joyful book. It's an interesting book that develops thickly and richly what these communities are. But, um, uh, uh, and so I would say, actually, if you're tempted to read this book, you should actually just go and read about those communities. Yeah. You should go and read about different communities, things like, um, or you could probably think of some, but something like even like Lash, yeah. Lash community. Or the Zapatistas. Like right. What? <laughs> They're a com- communist revolution. <laughs> okay. Don't worry. Um, so there's a danger, though, in this, though, because he presents these communities as part of this much wider narrative that he calls the Benedict Option. Um, James K. Smith has a very good review on Comment Magazine in which he says, you know, there's a tendency to then co-opt all these liturgical communities or communities of different disciplines mm. into what he calls the Ben-Op trademark, right? Everything mm. becomes in the Benedict Option if you're engaged in a intentional community or, commu- or community practices of some kind but the problem i think unfortunately these stories and then framed within this narrative of multiple falls that i think we can interrogate a bit more right um 
the falls, he has multiple falls in this narrative. So mm. multiple understandings that there's been a cultural turning or decline away from Christianity. He borrows from others to talk about shift from a participatory account of creation and transcendence towards a nominalist account. So there there's a fall in the Middle Ages that mm. takes place. But at the same time, he also sometimes characterizes the Middle Ages as themselves a time of barbarism that mm. needed someone like Benedict. Yeah. Um, he talks about the Renaissance as a shift from the glory of God to the humanistic glory of man. That's problematic. Mm. Um, if you think about how layered the, hum- uh, the humanist legacy from the Renaissance is, I mean, he f- refers to Pekin de Mar- uh, Marandola, um, in which uh, he says that he's an example of somebody talking about the glory of man when actually, well, no, he talks about uh, persons adopting the personas of God and, and the creativity mm. of God mm. in their own individual lives. Um, he then talks about uh, the Reformation as uh, the collapse of religious unity, religious wars. He briefly mentions Industrial Revolution. And then most importantly, he talks about the sexual revolution. Mm. Now, this becomes um, central to his narrative. He talks about the 1960s sexual revolution then leading into the development of same-sex marriage in uh, more recent times in a burger fell in 2015 in the united states he talks about this as the most revolutionary of revolutions mm. um now there's a whole bunch of questions here uh now these 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 falls have created a scenario he says in which um christians are essentially uh now um alienated from the country they thought was their own. That's yeah. a language he uses. Um, and in ways you could think of this as um, it's almost like reading a Hauwasian, mm-hmm. you know, someone who's uh, someone who's read Stanley Hauwas in an anti-Constantinian mode. If Stanley Hauwas were a little more fundamentalist. Yeah. <laughs> right. right. <laughs> so Hauwas is quite different because Hauwas talks about forming an alternative community of resistance against the state mm. where the state had the United States, especially has been um, involved in the killing power. Yeah. Right. Especially yeah. Hauwas is focused on pacifism for yeah. example whereas that's not really Dre's project although there is this again this um, this echo of it because it's about Christians forming their own parallel communities yeah. so he talks about internal exile from a country we thought was our own is yeah. the language he uses you would not get that language from Hauas because Hauas would say well the country yeah. was never our own the country was always very problematic yeah. right yeah. Um, so but anyway there's this um, one there's a bunch of points here i think that we can focus on and i I wanted to begin by um focusing on this focus on uh it sounds a bit funny i wanted to begin with dre's focus on sexuality Mm. right where he talks about this as the most revolutionary of revolutions yeah um now i i had real problems when i was reading this because Mm. um it seems to uh, I, I sometimes think of it as it seems to pathologize mm. um, or psychologize the problem. So the prob- so he says at different points that eros is sort of the, almost the fundamental driver mm. of our society. And eros then demands this kind of infinite freedom. And so that's why we get all this focus on sexuality. And, and in that sense, it seems to be saying that those who have captured yeah. the public square are essentially sex obsessives. Yeah. Um, so I, I probably want to go back a couple of steps. I, I think uh, just to bring some clarity to, I suppose, the, the central metaphor that's at play here, um, I don't think we've said that the idea is basically the Benedict option referring to a, a monastic community right. um, that is an alternative to the crumbling society 
around it um, uh, during the uh, transition from classical to Christian era um, that we sometimes call the Middle Ages or the Dark Ages. Um, yeah, so there's like a so kind of the idea that, yes, yeah, sorry, there is that idea. So St. Benedict um, created these monastic communities in a time when um, when Rome was falling yes. and, and tatters and mm. ruins, and that that led to communities mm. uh, that were then uh, became the seeds mm. for the renewal yeah. of the culture yeah. itself. Now, that renewal of the culture has declined again yeah. because of these multiple falls, you said. But yes, you're right. Yeah. It takes the monastic community as the central case yes. for uh, building a new common life. Now, um, and the other thing that I find interesting about this project um, generally is that... Um, it's not it's not an idea that's kind of emerged in isolation so there seems to be lots of different ver- versions of this through history uh, through history especially in recent history there's this um, turning towards intentional community as the answer to social woes um, but it also seems to be reflective of a current kind of political moment that we're having where there is a sense across the political spectrum that the political mainstream uh, no longer speaks for them or somehow excludes them. So you have this uh, on both the left and the right, people feel alienated from the political processes, the political status quo. And so you you see this in voting patterns. So people are um, voting for more and more um, minor parties in Australia, um, in the European Union, we've seen a swing towards the far right and more extreme parties. Um, and then also towards more, um, uh, I, I hate to say extreme left, I don't think that adequately describes the, um, what those parties actually are. But nonetheless, um, there's a sense in which the, the mainstream no longer is is people's home and so everybody seems to be feeling this way right. in in a sense so this seems to be a fundamentalist version um a christian fundamentalist version of some general theme in the culture yeah, and i guess what we say by um, christian fundamentalist there the reason for that is because and again this has been said by others that there is this 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 seems to be a a, a narrative that you get um every few years yes right that we christians need to shape up because the end is coming. Yeah. Uh, we need to get on the boats. We need to, and, and I grew up in this context in mm. the 80s and 90s when it was constantly pointed to, you know, oh my gosh, F, oh my gosh, F pass is coming to the yeah, world, yeah, you know, yeah. the beast is coming, yeah. <laughs> right? So, so, so num- James K. Smith, six, six, six yeah, is on, James um, K. Smith makes yeah. this point and it just resonated with me that uh, this is kind of like that narrative yeah. without the rapture. Yeah. So, but returning to your point about pathologizing this, this, um, this sense in which all of our op- opponents, um, can be seen as um, subject to forces of eros, to sexual desire. Well, that that is um, the that is the main thing yeah. going on. That that seems to be it's certainly the focus. Yeah. So he doesn't focus on. There's nothing. There's very little talk about markets. Yeah, yeah. Very little talk about labor. Very little talk about property. Yeah. Um, very little talk about philosophical conceptions of the self. Yeah. Very much focused yeah. on sex. Yes. So we'll we can maybe return to that that point a bit because I think that's spot on. I think. Uh, my my central critique of uh, what I've read of Dreyer um, is that he thoroughly underestimates how difficult it was to be um, a Christian um, already right. uh, because of economic um, pressures uh, to uh, pursue self-interest, um, to exploit labor, um, 
to engage in degradation of the environment. All these things are thoroughly anti-Christian practices that we are kind of almost forced to participate in through our economic conditions. So I think that's spot on. But this this pathologizing of opposition is something that you see um, happening quite a bit this uh, this desire this sense in which there is this kind of um yeah pathological fixation on sexuality um i am deeply disturbed whenever i see um, people trying to pathologize entire portions of the population in mm. a politi- in a political se- setting the partic- you see this uh, coming from the left as well so i saw countless articles last year about supposed and they seem like pretty dodgy studies that link kind of um, basically a lack of intelligence to conservative positions on things. And then even articles going so far as to link um, conservatism in politics to a type of brain damage. Now, there is kind of, I think it is fair to say that there can be kind of pathological streaks in political Mm. uh, ideologies. But as soon as you and this is a point that I think Hannah Arendt makes in Origins of Totalitarianism and the Human Condition as well. As soon as you make, um, as soon as you can medicalize the people who you see as... Or psychologize. Psychologize or, uh, yeah, I suppose I see psychologizing as a type of medicalizing. But uh, uh, as soon as you do that to people that you see as barriers to the the flow of history or the progress of history, then you open the door for these kind of radical technocratic... Um, solutions to those problems, which leads to, I, I think, inevitably leads to a totalitarian form of politics. So whenever, yeah, whenever this kind of language is evoked in politics, I automatically get my kind of scared mm. anti-totalitarian mm. Um, radar. Well, to out. my mind, it's just not complicated enough. Yes. So I was reading one essay the other day that referred to this uh, religious right version in the US as focused on pelvic orthodoxy. Yeah, pelvic, uh, of pelvic orthodoxy. Pelvic orthodoxy. I thought it was yeah. a great, great, yeah. um, great phrase. But it's not complicated enough. So he, he lo- leans a lot on Philip Reef, who's a um, thinker from the mm. 20th century in the United States and um, brought uh, popularizing a lot of Freudian understanding and so on. And so there's a kind of turning there to, mm. and i just find this interesting i'm not sure i've nailed it but this turning to wanting to turn what is larger narratives of culture you know practice mm. um philosophical thought interacting with those practices into a psychological moment right yeah. we can turn that oh, we those people now just a they're just captivated by the ultimate desire of eros for yeah. example um as opposed to you know he quotes taylor dread yeah. but it's not clear that he's fully read all of taylor you know yeah. if you think taylor talks about the modern moral order as beginning you know he discusses that in light of Locke, where Locke discusses how a person has property in his own person yeah and there's understandings of property that you know we're talking more far far further back in time than just mm. sort of the 60s right so there's i think there are much more uh much more going on in terms of how our market practices our labor practices mm. our understandings of property all these sorts of things and it's just in ways too easy to say it's about sex yeah right? yeah um so that also, I think, fits in with there's a certain Puritan streak yeah. in Dreyer's book when you read it. It's very much about, so he takes the rule of St. Benedict and he's, yeah. he's 
he, he tries to illustrate, you know, that this is not just about rules and discipline, but there's something of God within this and so on. And that's, mm. there's something true there, right? As in, we want to have, you, 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 we've talked before about almost liturgical forms providing discipline and rhythms yeah. and so on. But there's still this puritanical streak of sort of the kids are having too much sex, yeah. right? Yeah. Um, we've got to stop them from accessing the internet sort of thing. Yeah. And, and that again made me think, has he read Taylor? Mm. Because Taylor's whole understanding of the disciplinary society mm. gives rise to, he says, Taylor, gives rise to secularization mm. in which, uh, because for two reasons, one, it becomes um, an understanding that there are imminent rules for our own ethical cultivation. Mm. Rules become the basis for ethical formation, mm. uh, codes, for yep. example. And secondly, because there's a, a reaction against yep. this, the sheer harshness of the Christian turn to ethical codes and so on yeah. precipitates a reaction in which people turn away. So, yeah. you know, there's this period. But also that, that, that Taylor's point is as well that that, that move gets secularized, isn't it? Yes. Um, yes. Because it, Foucault talks about this as yeah, well. Yeah. Because it's imminent rules that yeah. then get rid of God in the end. Yeah. <clears throat> we discover the rules yeah. ourselves. But there's also this harsh, people react against the very harshness mm. of it, right? So I think, you know, there's that sort of selective yeah. quoting of Taylor, for example. And also, I think um, uh, the way that I would say it, although it's always more complicated than whatever you can say, but um, he thinks that autonomy is all about sex whereas i'd say it's the other way around is sex is just one example of mm. the autonomy that liberalism seeks to guarantee right, right. Um, so of course that sex becomes part of the ammunition used in the war to create some sort of yeah. or um, atomistic individual that is secured by a very strong state yeah, uh, no, and I, and I don't want to be said, seen as saying, you know, that these things, these developments aren't mm. unimportant. Mm. You know, they're they're very interesting and mm. they're fertile for examination and so on. But yes, on your point, like even just take Taylor again, Taylor's mm. discussion of this um, development would look at, for example, our shifting understanding of religion mm. itself, right? Um, various writers would say this, you know, even the development of a notion of autonomy as the um, ends of a liberal order is not, can't be uncoupled from shifts in the understanding of religion. Mm. But you don't get that sort of discussion in, in this book. It just more, you know, it's maybe hinted at it occasionally, but it's more focused on this very revolutionary moment. Mm. Okay, the second thing I wanted us to think about was the, the nature of the vision that's put forward here. Um, I think it's fascinating that he opts for Benedict mm. and he calls it an option. Now yep. I'll get to that point about option because, <laughs> because option, I think this ultimately this project that he um, details is quite liberal. Yeah. Um, but um, it's a Benedict option. Now on St. Benedict himself, we'd get very little detail in this book about St. Benedict. Mm. Um, but even then, I thought, why have we just chosen St. Benedict as though he were the central and only figure of that time? Yeah. At the time St. Benedict was operating, you also had popes that were having to exercise forms of temporal authority in mm. order to maintain stability. You also had, for example, around the same time, Pope Galatius. Pope Galatius sets out um, the fundamental doctrine of the two, it's sometimes called, where he mm. says, two there are by which this world is ruled, the mm. spiritual authority and the temporal authority. Mm. Right Now, that points to, as just an example... Isn't that the Sith Code? <laughs> Sorry. What? The rule oh, yeah, two. Two, there are. That's right. <laughs> Sorry. So, but but even even and now we'll talk about McIntyre in another episode. But he he appeals to Alistair McIntyre. But even McIntyre talks about then, for example, um, Pope Gregory the um, the seventh and the Hildebrandian reforms as as necessary instantiation of Augustine. Anyway, the point being here that 
Christian politics has always been much more layered, mm. much more multiple. Yeah. To point to one thing and collapse everything into it and call it the Benedict Option is, I think, very problematic. Yeah. Augustine, for example, Augustine writes these amazing letters to judges and rulers. He writes these letters to judges in which they're asking him how they should exercise their authority over people. And Augustine continually says, you should remain in your role as a Christian mm. because you can then bring mercy yeah. into the seat of judgment. Yeah. Um, he says to one, um, one judge, he says, you know, we should not ever abandon the cause of the church in the exercise of temporal authority. Mm. And the city of God, he says that God has honored Constantine because Constantine has turned the orientation of Rome towards the glory of God. God, mm. Right now, Augustine's not, you know, he's not, um, he's not, he's well aware of tensions mm. in the Christian life and the exercise of temporal authority. But you get a much more layered understanding there that I think is more historically correct as to the nature of Christian cr political witness, right? That there is just these multiple things that have been going on at different times. Mm. Um, yeah, absolutely. Weren't we going to call our podcast the Augustinian Option at one point? Really? I think we were. Gosh. <laughs> yeah, right. Okay. Well, yeah. I don't think it's an option. I just think it's the, the true way. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, there, there's an interesting point uh, there as well about, I think we, we were talking a bit before we um, record this about kind of, so a lot of this he gets from a figure that um, is profoundly influential on in myself, um, Alistair McIntyre. So McIntyre at the end of... Um, his wonderful book after virtue uh in the final chapter he or the the second the penultimate chapter he talks about the need to short find um communities of civility where the life of virtue can be cultivated um in an age of barbarism mm. and i think that's where dreyer is getting mm. his idea of benedict uh from but mcintyre makes uh, the important point that benedict never sought set out to do these things. Hmm. He was just setting up a community to live a Christian life. Hmm. Um, he wasn't trying to do something like um, uh, to, to pursue the ends of which God ended up using that community for. And it seems like this is a mistake in Christian thinking generally. The idea that we can kind of go back to a figure who achieved some great good for the kingdom and then just emulate their behavior and we'll get the same outcome. Hmm. It seems that God, God uses... Christian faithfulness in very unexpected ways right. and that you can't just set out to emulate this. And you find this on the micro level in let's do what the previous minister did and then mm. we'll guarantee mm. the results. And again, this comes back to the idea of eucatastrophe, mm. that God um, unexpectedly breaks into history right. with grace. And the Benedictine moment um, was one such moment where God was doing more than Benedict could ever expect. And I think there is a problem if you set out to be the next Benedict. I don't <laughs> think, I don't think you can do that. Yeah. Right. It's interesting. Yeah. Um, um, yeah, no, that's, 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 that's a, I mean, that in ways captures in part my concern with this almost this puritanical streak, mm. right? That it's through discipline that we can create an alternative. And there's both something just right. As yeah. multiple people would say as much anyway, Yes, but also something of gosh, um, Yes, like you know, you have to be prepared for surprise. Yeah, and 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 prepared for the surprising joy of yeah. it, right? Like a lot of yeah, this is just right. not at all joyful. Yeah, um, the, it's also I, I suppose my my one my one sense from skimming through the book is it's a very 
just a panicked book. Yeah. Um, there's a lot of like deep anxiety and it actually filled me with a bit of sympathy because you can, I can see in the writing a sense that so many people have that they no longer recognize themselves in their country and things like that. And that there's this agenda that's coming to um, inform the way that they teach their children and mm. things like that. And I kind of look at that and I kind of go, while I kind of maybe disagree with the particularities of what they think is the issue or mm. is the problem, I kind of am deeply sympathetic. Oh, no, um, there is. And so, yeah, yeah there um, is a lot there, I think, to, to actually think, yes, but, you know. But I, I wonder whether... There needs to be some Christian hopefulness in this yes, mix. Yes, yes, and also I'd say hopefulness, and also a l- um, and, a, and a, a lack of a giving up of um, your own capacity to manifest the kingdom mm. under your own steam. Right. Um, I think also hopefulness, but also more radical. Yeah. Ultimately, I don't think this is a very radical vision yes. because I think I, I, this is my suspicion, and I'll test it out with you that I think this benedict option Hmm. and some of these exilic narratives are ultimately just an echo of liberalism because what you're talking about here is sub communities perhaps sub communities of resistance but that's easily equated with a marketplace of ideas Hmm. right in which there are competitive alternatives that exist in a society which we're not concerned with society's own commitment to a common good for example Hmm. um you know, the end result seems to be the same as a liberal order. Liberal order may say politics is neutral and then allows people to pursue their own conceptions of the good. Mm. Here he says politics is something um, that's been alienated from us, but it's still something other, mm. something differentiated mm. from religion, something that he then says in his own politics, what we must focus on at the more um, universal societal level is the religious liberty to mm. engage in these communities. And then he also says in a very American turn, making sure we have the right Supreme Court justices, right? Mm. Now, that is not a radical politics to my mind. Mm. That is a politics that essentially seems to echo Mm. all the liberal thought that we would be accustomed to. Mm. Allow me, be a state that allows me to pursue my own option. Yeah. Right? These communities, yes, they're communities, but they just seem to be, in that sense, they just seem to be um, extended forms of individuals in a more liberal setting, right? So I think that's really problematic, that it's just not that... Um, radical. In fact, I think if you were interested in establishing these sorts of communities, you can't just be interested in a narrow conception of religious liberty. And I could talk at length about what I think religious mm. liberty should be orientated towards, oriented mm. towards. But, you know, you also need to be thinking about, well, various other kinds of laws, mm. um, zoning laws, yeah. building codes, mm. I don't know, various things, right, mm. that, that actually structure our common life together. Yeah. And can I make another point? Or do you yeah. want to jump in? Okay. No, no, no the, I'm, 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 I'm going on a roll. <laughs> so the other thing I kept thinking was, yeah, who, who are these communities for? Yeah. You know, who gets to form them? Yeah. It's very easy if you have a job that is quite liquid, mm. you know, web-based, for example. Yeah. And you can go out into a particular neck of the woods and you can form a community while engaging in your work. But a lot of people are stuck in these settings that you have now characterized as captured by some enemy forces. Yeah. And what do you do about them? (laughs) How do you help them? Yeah. You know, shouldn't our lives be about serving others? Yeah. Right. That there's that, that, that we need to actually be then thinking, well, no, I'm not going to just simply form my own community, but I'm going to think about the person who has to work three jobs. That's right. I'm going to start thinking about how can I change labor laws to make that different? Yeah. You know, 
there's a much more complex understanding about, yes, communities together, but also how do we instantiate the common good at multiple levels of our life together? Yeah, fascinating. I, I wonder whether there's parallels you could draw between the kind of affluent Westerner who jumps on a business class flight to India to go and sit in, on a, sit in a monastery to overcome her materialism, um, uh, you know, while the, and then, you know, com- complaining about the, the mess and noise of the life and then kind of going back and being yeah. a fundamental part of that structure. Right, right, um, right. Uh, upon returning. Um, well, just to, I mean, we have to finish, but I think just to say how, how do we approach this sort of argument, this book, hmm. David Brooks, who's a New York Times columnist or otherwise you could call him sometimes the scolder in chief. Hmm. Um, he, he refers to this book as the most important book, religious book of the decade. <sighs> and I thought, okay, like I, I, again, I don't, you know, like you said, there are some sympathetic moments to this book. Yeah. And we would be saying a lot of the practices that have been discussed, hmm. liturgical, common life together, forming rhythms together in which you're, you know, you are, you geographically try and locate yourself around a worshiping mm. community, all these sorts of things. A lot of that we'd agree with, yeah. but we wouldn't want it co-opted into this entire vision. Yeah. Right? And, you know, to say then this is the most important book, I go, oh gosh, well, but we've actually heard a lot of this before. Yeah. This is echoing a lot of things we've heard before. So my, my general approach to this would be um, to think, going back to what I said earlier, explore rich communities. Yeah, absolutely. You know, explore what they have done in history, but then also have a more nuanced understanding, as you were mentioning, of a sort of providential history. Yeah. The way in which grace, the way in which love, charity is instantiated throughout time in multiple different ways. Yeah. And just calm down. (laughs) 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 Yeah. We'll get to that more uh, in in the next two episodes, actually. Um, But learning to actually... um, sit in a tradition and not feel the need to control and push out and um and have an identity marker and things like that i think that is that is the challenge of our age um but we'll be talking about that over the next couple of episodes we're just about out of time uh thank you so much for listening to us um thanks for all the people that have um uh given us reviews um Please keep doing that. If you're if you're a new a new listener, um, please uh, drop us a review, like us, uh, subscribe to us. Uh, all that really helps us get uh, get out there um, and get more people exposed to um, our ramblings. Uh, you can follow us on Twitter uh, on uh, at ucat e u c a t underscore podcast, um, and you can find us on Facebook by just searching the Eucatastrophe, and you'll see a picture of a broken egg, and that's how you'll find us. Um, but thank you so much for joining us, and we'll talk to you next month. Bye, um, week. Bye. <laughs>